The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm David Faber with Leslie Picker. We're live from Post Line of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, Citi's global economist Rob Sockin on a slowdown in global growth and why he still sees a U.S. recession. Then conflict grows in the Red Sea with the arrival of an Iranian warship. We'll look at the impact for the energy markets. And finally, Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo on why Citi's stock that Citigroup can double over the next three years. But first, a look at the markets. Uh, you've got the Dow turning positive, barely hanging in there. The Nasdaq uh, down 1.8% currently, uh, just a little bit off of session lows. Uh, topping the tape for us today, flows in 2023. Global equities saw $172 billion worth of inflows. While that sounds like a huge number, it's actually the least amount in the past four years, despite the massive rally. Even in a down tape, 2022 saw larger inflows. Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, uh, who can help explain this dynamic and, and why flows may not necessarily indicate performance in these broader markets. Yeah, to some degree, Leslie, flows do chase performance rather than leading it. And I, these numbers from Goldman Sachs do show on, a, on an annual basis Really, investors are not overexcited about stocks. Now, I will say, because the indexes were up a lot, therefore the value of people's equity portfolios were higher, uh, you know, the market kind of did its, uh, its work for you in terms of getting you further exposed to equities. On a shorter-term basis, too, I mean, in the latest performance week, uh, net inflows were the highest that, that they've been in six months. And then on about a three-month rolling basis, I saw some data this morning suggesting we are at some extremes in terms of the volume of money rushing in to things like S&P 500 ETF. So it all, it all fits in with this idea of short term, the market seems like it's a little bit stretched and running kind of hot, maybe should cool off, maybe we get a little bit of a sentiment reset. But longer term, it doesn't seem as if people are fully all in or fully in, in greed mode. And the final point on that is, if you look at the uh, Wall Street strategist's array of targets for the S&P 500 for the end of 2024, uh, the, the upper end of it is 5,200. Now, that would be nice, of course, for a lot of investors, but that's only a 9% gain from where we finished last year. And in general, in aggregate, the, the strategists see very little net progress happening in stock prices this year. You have some for forecasting downside you know, to 4,200 or something like that at J.P. Morgan. So I do think that it's a, a little bit of a, you know, people are getting more interested, but not yet over their schemes. Yeah, quite the dispersion in those forecasts. I know in, in your column over the weekend, you mentioned the $6 trillion in money market assets and this kind of notion that they could be fuel for the next leg of a bull market. But you say that that's actually ill-considered. Uh, why is that? For a couple of reasons, Leslie. First of all, retail money market assets are more like two and a half trillion of that, as opposed to the six trillion that you hear mentioned all the time. A lot of the two and a half trillion, as you know, is really just replacing bank deposits. It was sort of a cash substitute as opposed to money that's poised to enter the, the equity market. And in, gener in general, it's just in aggregate, not a huge number relative to the size of U.S. equities. Uh, back in 2009, at the bottom, money market assets were half of equity market cap, S&P 500 market cap. Now, uh, I mean, equity market cap is like 45 trillion or something like that, and you have 6 trillion in aggregate 
in money markets. So to me, it's just not the place to look if you want to build a bullish case. Sure, people can put more money in the market. People can let their equity allocations go higher if the stocks do well. But I don't think that you want to necessarily hinge a positive view on the fact that people are going to be running out of money market. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a little bit like what Kate Rooney was just telling us about people's bull case uh, for Bitcoin this year. Uh, just kind of a, a whole risk on mentality there. Yeah. Uh, Mike, thank you. Our next guest expects a global growth slowdown and U.S. recession this year, but notes the soft landing possibility has risen and is keeping a close eye on consumer spending, supply chains and Fed commentary. Joining us now, City Global economist Rob Sockin. Uh, so you are in the slowdown camp, but soft landing, you think, is becoming more likely. Uh, do you think that those Fed lag effects from, you know, the, the historic hiking of interest rates, that they supersede the Fed pivot that has largely uh, been kind of working its way through the various markets? That's a great question. And I think we're still seeing signs that those interest rate hikes that we had earlier in the cycle are playing through the system. Uh, I would point to still tightening credit conditions um, that typically you only see around recessionary periods. We're seeing growing strains among lower income consumers in the U.S. Um, and that is another sign that those interest rates are really starting to play through. On the other hand, as you said, the Fed has started to pivot already. Um, and maybe that'll start to work in the other direction against some of those strains. But on the other hand, that mo might pose some upside risk for inflation. It might mean the Fed might have to come back and do a little bit more or stay higher for longer. So it's a very difficult balancing act um, watching how these lags are playing through. But also, if the Fed pivots too soon, you could get some of those inflationary effects coming back. So given the complexity of all that, how do you put a probability on a, a soft landing and that increasing? Is that just largely based on kind of what the market is doing and and potentially solving some of those those tightening issues that, you know, we were so common in our vernacular throughout the course of 2023? I think uh, to assess the soft landing probability, you, you effectively have to look at what's been happening in the data. I think the history tell you a soft landing is unlikely. If you look at periods where inflation got this high and wage growth got this elevated, you always had a recession and a rise in the unemployment rate. Um, there's still a lot more of that to come. You really need wage growth to come down a bit more from here to be sustainable. But you've had several months of inflation coming down with very little cost to activity. So I think the actual data is telling you that maybe this time could be different um, and that the historical relationship may not hold. So really, it's the actual data that's guiding that soft landing probability. We're not quite in that camp. As you said, we're still in the recessionary camp, but certainly that soft landing uh, risk has gone up a lot given the data we've seen. But that said, as you say, you're still in the recessionary camp and you say one reason is the process of bringing non-shelter services inflation down to more sustainable levels is likely to be more painful than the economic adjustment that's occurred to date. Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at a lot of the adjustment we've seen to date, um, in the first instance, it was those global supply chain issues, that strength in goods demand, really drove up goods inflation early in the cycle. Now goods inflation is running near pre-pandemic levels. Most of that battle looks to have been won. Um, another element is that shelter inflation, which we know from a lot of other indicators is likely to come down. 
pinning down when it's going to come down is difficult, but that's likely to, to follow suit. Um, but it comes down to these non-shelter services, which we think is much more tied to labor market strength and domestic momentum. And given where wage growth is, it's unlikely um, to bring uh, that element of, of inflation down without more of a loosening labor market, which will bring that wage growth down, which is getting passed into so those services we prices. employment up and or wages down or growth down. Yes. Which, of course, would be a recession potentially. Exactly. We're not going to ultimately get there on inflation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the one argument I can make for why you could break that without having a recession is maybe more of that services inflation is being driven by the supply side than we give credit for. So as labor supply continues to come back, maybe that'll help ease some of these inflationary pressures we're seeing in the labor market, which will help cool that services inflation. Um, But we think more of it's being driven by the demand side, and you really need a cooling um, in demand and in the labor market to bring down that wage growth. With all that said, is monetary policy still a broader headwind at this point, or do you think something like geopolitics has really come to the forefront as being the biggest headwind for the economy? I think geopolitics is really an underappreciated risk for for two reasons. One, I mean, those, for example, um, just looking beyond U.S.-China, even if you look at what's going on in the Red Sea, that has some risk to reverse some of that progress we made in goods inflation I mentioned. But on top of that, and this is something we highlight in our global outlook, um, we have something like dozens of national elections for this year, which in and of themselves put a lot of risk to a variety of economies around the world and the global economy more generally. So I think global politics, geopolitics could be a big theme for 2024. Excellent. Uh, Rob Sockin, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, up next, speaking of geopolitics, a volatile session for crude this after conflict in the Red Sea, the arrival of an Iranian warship. RBC's Halima Croft is going to help us understand what's at stake. Plus, Barclay says it's time to take a breather, cutting Apple to underweight, why they say iPhone demand is a concern heading into 2024. Money Movers is back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Welcome back. A volatile session for oil prices after Iran dispatched a warship to the Red Sea. The move comes after the U.S. Navy destroyed three Houthi boats, which had fired on a commercial vessel. Matt Bradley is in Tel Aviv with the latest. Matt. Yeah, thanks, Leslie. It looks as though even as we're seeing a really ratcheting up, or at least a continuation of Israel's fight in the Gaza Strip, which has now killed, just as of today, more than 22,000 Palestinians, we're also seeing this fighting expanding now. We're seeing uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen attacking commercial shipping. And this has been going on for the past several months. But now we're really starting to see the U.S. fighting back in earnest and Iran ratcheting up their defenses on their side. Now, just over the past weekend, we heard from actually the Houthis themselves. They admitted that the United States had sunk three of their vessels and killed 10 of their fighters. And now we are hearing that the Iranians are, for the first time, deploying a large warship into the Red Sea. 
Now, that could be something that had been planned before, but it looks as though this is a response to the increasing tensions in that region. Iran backs the Houthi rebels in Yemen, just like they do Hezbollah and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. So this really is a ratcheting up of tensions and one that could drag the United States into a broader regional war against the Iranians. Now, that could really be bad for just about everybody. And we've been seeing a lot of continued fighting, not just in the Red Sea, but also over the border between Lebanon and Israel, north of where I'm standing now, between the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli military, and uh, Palestinian or Arab militant groups, namely Hezbollah, which is the most powerful anti-Israel militant group in southern Lebanon. So we're seeing this expanding, but there's also some domestic news here in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu took a major blow just today when the Supreme Court decided to reject his legislation that would have essentially kneecapped the judiciary and kept them from making decisions based on a reasonableness doctrine. This was something that allowed the judiciary judges to essentially say that if a law that was passed by parliament or some sort of measure that was put in place by the cabinet, that they called it unreasonable, they would be allowed to block it. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu and his unprecedentedly right-wing cabinet have bucked against that for the past several years. They had legislation that would have basically kept the judiciary from doing that. The judiciary, again, today, blocked it. So now Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing partners are going to either have to uh, drop this legislation or come up with some new method to get past the Supreme Court, some new way of writing this law. But the fact is, is that this is dividing Israel more than it already has been at a time when it really doesn't need to be divided. Guys? Yeah, Matt. And of course, may have also distracted the IDF uh, to a large extent as well. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, let's talk uh, a bit more about where all this goes from here and what it's going to mean for energy. Joining us now is uh, RBC's head of global commodity strategy, Halima Croft. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me on. There's a lot to keep track of. I'm curious, Halima, given your lo long experience, both in geopolitics as well, you know, what are you focused on sort of as key moments here or key events? I mean, there are really three fronts to pay close attention to. Obviously, what's happening in the Red Sea with the Iranian warship entering the Red Sea, the sinking of the three Houthi ships over the weekend. But the situation in Lebanon is also a really important pathway to potential escalation in the region. And we just had reports that there have been, you know, some type of explosion that happened, you know, in southern Beirut. The question is, are the Israelis now backing wars with action in terms of taking more decisive action against Hezbollah. They have said that Hezbollah needs to leave the border area, comply with UN Resolution 1701. And if they do not leave the border area, they will confront Hezbollah directly. That would be something the United States would be very concerned about. But obviously, that is a situation worth close watching. Yeah. And what does it all mean in terms of the price of oil? You know, we've seen some volatility this morning. Right. Obviously, we know the Red Sea. Iran is a huge provider as well. Um, where are you know and what are you focused on in terms of trying to determine what it means near term for oil? Oil market participants are essentially saying I will believe a disruption when I see it. So yes, you've had some run up in prices, but given the importance of this region in terms of shipping of crude, production of crude, it's not really reflecting the ratcheting up of tensions. I think so many traders got burned on Russia. So many people when that war began said we're going to see significant Russian supply disruptions that did not materialize. And so now they're saying, 
look, we've had problems in the Middle East before. Tell me why this is different. I think it's materially different, but right now we've had no major disruption of oil supplies. Yeah. Well, we're doing a pretty good job of keeping things supplied, aren't we? At 13.2 million going up from there. Exactly. I mean, this is the backdrop in terms of a well-supplied oil market. The U.S. production story was gangbusters last year. That has weighed on prices. But again, if we were to see something material involving Iran, I mean, the really important waterway to pay attention to is the Straits of Hormuz. And the Iranians have targeted tankers in the Straits before. They did it in 2019. If you saw any action in the Straits, that would be material for oil prices. Why do you think this is so much different than what we saw in Russia and Ukraine two years ago? What is it that the market isn't really discounting at this point in time? Well, I think the market is basically saying, tell me how this gets worse. And we look at the situation and say, we have three active theaters right now, which could basically lead to a broader conflict. We've talked about the Red Sea. We've talked about Lebanon. But we also have the situation in Iraq with Iranian-backed militias firing on bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq. You had these same militias firing into the Golan Heights over the weekend. And so, again, Iraq is a major oil producer as well. And so I think the market is basically saying, we will wait and see if something happens, but it's really getting much more serious every day. What do you think is the red line for the U.S. to have more of a direct involvement? Because so far it, it feels like there's a lot of, you know, theaters, as you mentioned, and a lot of activity. But what is that line where they will be forced to uh, that is act the, more directly. the million-dollar question. I mean, certainly with President Trump, he drew that lead line as the loss of American life. Remember, that's why we killed Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard. We don't know yet really what is the red line for President Biden. Now, if you had one of these attacks lead to a significant loss of U.S. servicemen in Iraq, would that be a significant red line? But the question is, is the U.S. even really in control of events? Like, that's why we say watch the situation in Lebanon, because the Israelis have said that they are not going to stand for Hezbollah staying on that border. They want to encourage their own internally displaced people to move back to northern Israel. So that is a, a flashpoint that I think bears very close watching. Yeah, they've, they've had hundreds of thousands of people who've moved out of that northern, the border. northern border area. Of course, Iran it backs Hezbollah, which is far more sophisticated in terms of its... 150,000 rockets. Right. And, and, its, and its soldiers as well. They are at the center of all three of these stories. And at a minimum, I think the question the Biden administration is going to face as we bring it back to oil is, are we going to continue to allow so much Iranian oil on the market? You talked about U.S. production, mm. gangbusters in 2023. We also saw rising Iranian exports as well. How's the Iranian economy doing, though? I mean, they had... They Terrible have, inflation and a lot of they've, problems. They've suffered with inflation. They've suffered with protests. But again, it's the same story with Russia. If you retain access to your most vital source of revenue, you can keep your activities going when it comes to funding your war machine and funding your proxies. Mm. Alima, thank you. Thank you for having me. Alima Croft. Later on this hour, New York and California consider wealth taxes as revenues are drying up. We're going to look at what those proposals include. Plus, we're keeping an eye on the cybersecurity names underperforming the broader market. The cyber ETF is down for the fourth straight day and on pace for its worst day since August. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our money-moving interviews on demand by subscribing to our podcast. We're back in a moment. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, 
They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Welcome back. European markets mostly muted heading into the close on the first trading day of the year. Spain's IBEX showing biggest signs of life up nearly 1%. The blue chip stock 600 pulling back after touching 23-month highs earlier this morning. And Eurozone PMI could be telling the story. The headline manufacturing number coming in above expectations but contracting for the 18th straight month indicating Europe likely already in a recession. Obviously, David, that's complicated by what's going on in the Red Sea, a key shipping route for them. Uh, So we'll keep a close eye on that. Yeah, I mean, that economy has struggled for a very long time. Facing even more headwinds. What is it? Grown like 9% since the financial crisis, something very, very small. All right, we're uh, about two hours into trading. Let's go over to Bob Bassani right now. He's going to look at what's uh, caught his attention so far this morning. Bob. And, uh, of course, not starting off on a great footing, but the important thing is we're working a lot working off a lot of the oversold conditions that we've had. So not bad news and not surprising that tech's underperforming. You don't need an Apple uh, downgrade by Barclays to have uh, something happen uh, in tech today. I just want to show you this is mean reversion at its most classic. I was talking with David and Leslie about it here. Look at Salesforce. Here's a Dow component up over 90 percent last year. What's one of the weakest sectors today? One of the weakest stocks is Salesforce down 2.7 percent. Again, you, you don't need that downgrade to Apple to have this. This is very typical to get these mean reversion trades. Uh, we had software stocks take off really nicely last year after November. ServiceNow was up 75%, huge, hit new highs all the time. There you see, down 3% today. Uh, other sort of subsectors of tech did a little bit better. Even Shopify rallied rather nicely, and, and that was up notably. That's down about 5% today here. Um, other kinds of, uh, you could call them broad software uh, names like Snowflake. Uh, also had a great November and December, was up about, oh, 35, 36 percent on the year. There you see, down 4 percent. I mean, it's not a coincidence. They're all down 3 or 4 percent. And then you could switch this around a little bit and look at other things. Uh, let me show you, uh, oh, here's Norwegian Cruise Line. All the cruise lines and the, tra- uh, the uh, travel stocks had a great November and December. Uh, they were up, uh, Norwegian Cruise up 50 percent last year, getting down 7 percent. Carnival also down today, big, big. Gainers last year tend to be down today. Then I want to just show you some other names that are out out there. Uh, Consumer staples names. Tough times last year. We talked about Campbell's hitting new lows almost every day in the the final quarter of the year here. Uh, And there's Campbell's soup up about 2%. Kraft is up. Altree is up. Uh, You get the idea here? These are mean reversion trades. Play the opposite side of what happened. Uh, A biggest example is just looking at the pharmaceutical names. Tom's got a pivot right here. But if you take a look at Pfizer, these all of these names, uh, Pfizer was down 40 percent last year. Rallying modestly today. Same thing. Bristol Myers down 25 percent. It's rallying. Merck down big. It's rallying. You get the idea? Now, the problem, you guys know this, David, you know this, these mean reversion trades don't really work for any long periods of time unless conditions are perfect. You got to keep the interest rates low. You got to keep the soft landing going. And we'll see. Other than that, this is a fairly typical start to the year. Guys, back to you. (laughs) Yeah, I guess if they lasted forever, they would just come back at neutral. (laughs) So we are thankful for that. Uh, Bob, appreciate it. Time now for a news update. Bertha Coombs has that for us. Bertha. Hi, Leslie. Israeli officials say the country will defend itself against absurd genocide accusations at the United Nations highest court. 
South Africa launched a case against Israel at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. The filing alleges Israel's actions in Gaza were, quote, genocidal in character. It also asked for a court order to halt its military campaign. A former gang leader charged in the 1996 killing of Tupac Shakur plans to ask a judge to release him on house arrest. Court-appointed lawyers for Dwayne Davis say he is in bad health, does not pose a danger to the community, and will not try to make a run for it before trial. Davis had pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. He's been in jail without bail since his September 29th arrest. And a set of twins in South Jersey were born minutes apart, but in different years. Older brother Ezra entered the world at 11.48 p.m. on New Year's Eve, while Ezekiel made his grand entrance at 12.28 on New Year's morning. Their parents say they're both thrilled boys are healthy, uh, that both of them are healthy, and they now have a great birthday story to tell. And of course, that means, Leslie, that they can only take the child deduction for one this year and then take it for the Most new one Most importantly next year. for our financial audiences. And they also get their own birthdays, which is good, too. As That's a true. holiday baby myself, I can, I can appreciate that. Uh, Bertha, thank you. Up next, Mike Mayo says Citi's stock can double over the next three years. He joins us right here at Post 9 to break down the bull case, plus his outlook for Morgan Stanley as the new CEO takes over. We're back in two. Welcome back. We're uh, keeping an eye on the chip stocks, ASML, amongst the biggest decliners. This after it was barred by the Dutch government from exporting some of its products to China. Uh, that move comes after the U.S. government tightened export controls on some semiconductor and chip-making tools to China. The move taking the rest of the complex down as well. You can see Marvel, Intel, um, and Wolfspeed all. Actually, Wolfspeed's not lower, but uh, the rest are, Leslie. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, a bull case from the desk of Wells Fargo's desk grabbing our attention this morning. The firm hikes their 12-month price target on Citigroup to 70 and expects the stock to double to over $100 per share. In the next three years, they expect EPS to jump due to efficiencies, buybacks, revenue gains. The analyst behind that call joins us now, Wells Fargo's head of U.S. large cap bank research, Mike Mayo. Mike. Kicking off the year uh, with a bang here. So the market, for the most part, has really discounted Citi's stock due to execution risks surrounding turnaround, some of the divestitures that they're working on. Uh, you think that execution risk that the market's concerned about is misplaced at this point? Uh, absolutely. To the investors that say that Citigroup is unmanageable, unquantifiable, and uninvestable, you know, I say you're absolutely wrong. And uh, I and we have a new 50-page report to back that up. This is the CEO's moment of truth, Jane Frazier's moment of truth. They have their org simplification. They're reducing management layers from 13 to 8. What companies have 13 management <laughs> layers? I'm not sure how many layers you are from your CEO, but it's, I can tell you it's not 13. Uh, they've eliminated two intercompany business lines. They now have five lines of business like a normal company. I mean, they have services, banking, markets, U.S. personal banking, and global wealth. That's it. Five lines of business. And we were talking before I went live about Citigroup of old and all the different countries and everything else. They're exiting 14 non-U.S. consumer markets. So they are becoming a much more simple and profitable firm. And I think that their earnings will double 
over the next three years. And as investors catch wind of that, I think the stock will catch a better bid. So but, you're, you're a Jane Frazier fan. Why? I think fan is in context. Okay. <laughs> so but I've heard you be pretty critical, unlike many other analysts through the years of many CEOs, uh, outspoken sometimes. And in this case, you seem to be supportive. Why? Well, I'd say Jane Frazier is finally addressing the decades-old issues that have plagued Citigroup. It goes back to Sandy Weil and the acquisitions uh, that he made. It did great for a while, but they weren't fully integrated. So now they're getting integrated two decades later. They pursued a global strategy of consumer banking. That was flawed. That goes back two, three, four, five decades. Mm. So they're retreating from that. Uh, They're finally attacking their technical debt or their legacy infrastructure. And the matrix management structure that they've had for decades is finally going away to those five lines of business. So we can now talk about Citigroup like a normal company. So am I a Jane Frazier fan? I think it's she's moving the right direction. It still waits to be seen whether she'll execute, but she can get a lot wrong and the stock can still go a lot higher. But also the the macro can go wrong as well because they're doing this. They're doing this turnaround against a backdrop that's been at least in the last few months, pretty favorable for the banking environment. But if there is some sort of recession, not a soft landing, but a real recession, I mean, they have a lot of exposure to cards, a lot of exposure to consumer, and they're becoming more focused on the U.S., which limits the diversification of other markets as well. Well, I agree. So we have several scenarios in our 50-page report. The bear scenario or recession scenario, and this stock goes lower. There's no ifs or buts about that. But what kind of percentage probability are you putting on that? So we say one fourth of the time, the stock, you know, it could go down significantly. But the other three fourths of the time, we think the stock does very well, a double in three years. And in fact, in our bull case scenario, you know, 20, 25 percent chance, the stock could triple over the next three to four years. So the upside when you're trading at 60 percent of tangible book value and you're moving in the right direction with better efficiency and returns could be Phenomenal. So we're looking at it from a reward to risk ratio. That looks very attractive. What, what, what is their core competency? I mean, you talked about all these businesses they're getting out of and things that they've been doing through the years. What are they good at? You know, so many investors ask us, why does Citigroup exist? And by the way, I was there during the global financial crisis saying, yeah, break up, not all the banks, break up Citigroup. Mm. In a way, they've broken up themselves. But look, take three lines of business, services, banking, and markets. That's 60% of core Citigroup. 95 countries around the world, 5,000 multinational customers where they're looking to deepen payments, banking, and markets, market share. That's very easy to understand. So the glass is at least 60% full. The other 40% would be that U.S. personal banking credit cards, their top three. I'm not going to the mat defending that or not, but if we don't go in recession, that should be okay. And then global wealth is about 10%. Yeah, that waste to be seen. I think Asia is stronger than the rest of the world, but I'll take the glass 60% full for a company that's trading at 60% of tangible book value any day of the week. Huh. Notable from you especially. I, I, before you go, I want to ask about Morgan Stanley, a different C-suite, um, because Ted Pick took the helm there, uh, technically, I guess, as of yesterday, but today, first day, everybody's kind of back in the office. Uh, what are your expectations for his tenure at the top? What do you think his first priorities should be now that he's in that job? Well, I loved reading a John Max book, you know, when he said he's all in. And he talked about the first days of James Gorman taking over. And James Gorman coming from the 
wealth management side really had to convince the investment bankers that he had their back. Ted Pick, coming from the investment banking side, really has to convince the global wealth advisors that he has their back. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo. Thanks for having me. Right, we're going to have a look at uh, Barclays downgrade of Apple. That'll be next. iPhone demand, of course, as you might expect, a key focus in that report. We will break it down. The stock, uh, as you see, is down uh, over, uh, what is it down? Yeah, almost 3%. Plus, New York and California considering wealth taxes, this, as they've had a hard time with revenues in those states. We're back after Barclays downgrading Apple. It's now an underweight at that firm. It is the focus of today's Tech Check with Steve Kovac. Steve. Hey there, David. Yeah, Apple starting the new year with that downgrade from Barclays. Not a good start. Shares falling about 3% or so. And Barclays really laying out the headwinds. It's going to expect that's going to result in a tough March quarter. So here's the case they lay out in the note today. Calling the iPhone 15 sales, quote, lackluster, especially in China. We know all the problems going on there. And says that weakness will continue with the launch of the next iPhone, likely this fall. And a UBS note also backing that up with uh, November iPhone sales data, basically showing the same thing, a lot of weakness in the U.S. and China. Also saying no rebound in Mac and iPad demand post-pandemic. The needs to fall back to those pre-COVID levels before there's a recovery. And then on services, we've seen growth accelerate in the last quarter or so, likely going to be up 10% year on year for the December quarter. But that's because comps are a lot easier from a year ago. And Barclays expecting deceleration in growth in services throughout 2024 and even into 2025. Now, some reasons behind that, regulatory risks. DOJ is going to have a verdict pretty soon here against Google, and that puts the payments it makes to Apple at risk. We all know, of course, Apple pays billions, maybe as much as $19 billion a year, to be the default search engine on Apple devices. Plus, there's the Digital Markets Act going into full effect over in Europe, and that is a threat to App Store revenue. That said, Barclays is expecting December quarter to be in line with expectations. Still, though, Apple's guidance for that quarter said sales going to be flat year over year after four quarters in a row of declining sales. And as for that March quarter, the quarter and now, Barclays now estimating below the consensus, hence the new price target, 160 bucks or about 14 or so percent downside from where shares are now, guys. Yeah, um, Steve, they lead the note sort of talking about iPhone demand and saying their checks in particular are picking up weakness of iPhone volumes and mix. I'm curious, given you cover it, uh, this company closely, what you're hearing in terms of demand. Yeah, it's this is the really tough one. It's all about China and the U.S. I mean, I asked Tim Cook about this directly, uh, I believe, it, uh, last earnings, so about a quarter ago. And he basically said, you know, smartphone demand is really tough right now in these most profitable markets. And we're not going to see enough of makeup in those emerging markets. We've been hearing Apple talk more and more about Indonesia, India and so forth. It's just not enough to make up for the weakness, especially in China, as things are opening up there. I also forgot to mention Huawei. There's a lot more competition coming online over in China because this new homegrown brand is making phones again after being out of the game for a couple of years there, David. And we're seeing evidence that people are, in fact, switching, who had switched from Huawei to iPhone, going from iPhone back to Huawei. And that could continue throughout the years, David. Yeah, you've got more competition, inflation creeping into uh, the savings of uh, Americans. Steve Kovac, thank you. Thanks, guys. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index finishing lower for the fourth straight year. The outlook for Chinese stocks is next. We're back in two. 
Welcome back. Keeping an eye on Tesla this morning, the company reporting 2023 delivery numbers that came in above estimates, rising 38 percent year over year, bringing the total to 1.8 million. Wall Street saying the attention now turns to margins. Oppenheimer predicting we'll see moderate margin improvement considering supply chain rationalization, lower lithium costs and improved efficiency. UBS saying that pricing action helped drive volume, which was margin negative. And going forward, they'll expect the Cybertruck will likely be a headwind. Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi adds they believe Tesla will see lower margins and disappoint on volumes going forward. China, obviously, very important for them as well. China, very important. And BYD, the largest manufacturer now in the world. Yep. Um, Dan Ives earlier with us talking about 2.3 million because Phil LeBeau had thrown it out there as a possible number for Tesla for deliveries for 2024. We'll see. You got the, uh, but to your point, you got the BYD competition. Also, the loss of that tax, tax credit for some of their vehicles goes into effect Gen 1 yesterday. So we'll see what kind of an impact that has. Uh, $7,500 per car. So. It's not insignificant. Not insignificant. Not insignificant at all. All right. Speaking of China, by the way, let's uh, let's talk a bit more about it. It's uh, after a down year for Chinese markets in 2023. President Xi Jinping warned that, quote, on the path ahead, winds and rains are the norm, pledging measures to boost growth moving forward. That's after new factory activity data showed a third straight month of contraction. That was for December and the latest sign of weakness in the Chinese economy. So what can we expect? In the new year, joining us now from Beijing is MSA Capital and Core Values Alpha founder Ben Harburg. Ben is also the portfolio manager of the Greater China Growth ETF. Ben, always good to get your take on things on the ground in Beijing. And so, first off, what did you make of Xi's comments over the weekend? They always try to manage expectations, so they're going to always under-promise and try to hit it or over-deliver. And so I think that they will um, manage expectations going into the year because they were perhaps over-exuberant last time around. Um, but, but I think that you know they'll probably end up with about a 5% growth target and they'll hit it. Overall, though, they, they want to make sure everyone knows this is not going to be easy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you would know far better than I, but it doesn't appear that many U.S. investors want much to do with China. And there I'm not talking about companies. I'm talking about individuals and the like who might invest with you. I mean, Alibaba is below its IPO price. We looked at that earlier. What is going on here? Uh, it's a simple uh, example of uh, where fundamentals are being overwhelmed by narrative. Right. And um, we really believe there's a, a re-rating of historic blue chip tech companies going on right now, the likes of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. These were historically proxies for the Chinese economy. And so a, a negative China narrative will weigh them down, uh, all fundamentals aside. For instance, someone like Baidu has done more hours of autonomous driving than any global competitor. And, and yet, you know, that part of their business isn't even valued. And so it's, it's, it's going to be par for the course for those big China blue chip names. It's interesting, Ben, because a lot of the companies that are, you know, rumored to be looking to go public uh, that are based in China um, have kind of a, a global bend to them. You've got Xi'an, Ant, ByteDance, uh, just to name a few uh, possible contenders. When we look back to some of the previous Chinese companies that went public, like a JD.com or an Alibaba, those were more kind of China domestic names. What do you think the likelihood is that, uh, you know, there's broad investor interest in and that these names can be successful uh, in going public given just the overall backdrop of what's going on in China. 
Well, ironically, the Chinese have tried to mask the fact that many of these companies are Chinese, right? So uh, many Americans today are buying products from an application called Temu. They don't realize that that's owned by Pinduoduo. Uh, many global consumers didn't know that Shein was a Chinese business. Uh, you know, even TikTok kind of cloaked itself in musically when it first launched in the U.S. And so um, a lot of these are kind of seeping their way into the value chain, seeping their way into the hearts and wallets of consumers. Um, and they, it's become a major narrative. It's something we've invested in for a long time. We believe Chinese, not just consumer-facing electronic companies, but now that hardware uh, realm, the likes of BYD, even Huawei, Techno, and emerging markets from the hardware space, Xiaomi, all of these are now huge global payers battling against their American incumbents. And, and they've been doing very well. And they're taking on, in the case of Temu and Xi'an, the likes of Dollar General and Amazon and Uniqlo and Zara. Uh, and so I think this is a major theme for 2024. Yeah. Uh, ben, I'm, you know, I'm just curious always about your business. I mean, you're making the case here that perhaps things are not nearly as bad as they would appear. What are you seeing in terms of flows? You know, how many investors do you have at this point? Uh, how do you approach that? We all saw the data in terms of the outflows from China over the course of last year. Um, for us, we think that's an opportunity. We think that um, you know everyone is run from the market from what I think are non-fundamental reasons. Uh, the the actual financials in these businesses are sound. We've seen really kind of banded numbers. Our fund only launched at the tail end of last year. We're up you know three percent since that point. Um, and we expect that 2024 should be a, a more robust growth year, given, again, how seriously the Chinese government, Xi, even in his statements kind of around the APEC and later, right. um, know that they must improve the economy. And, and finally, Ben, you know, I appreciate the fact that you are there in Beijing, unlike a number of managers of Chinese funds who, frankly, are over here more often than not. Uh, but what is it like uh, in terms of your day to day there? Do you feel like you can ask tough questions? Do you have access that you need to do the fundamental research you need to do? It's freezing cold here to start. Um, beyond that, we, we feel like we do get that level of access. Obviously, we have a team of uh, a large Chinese national team of boots on the ground. We're able to talk directly to managers, to uh, to the other kind of senior executives within businesses. Um, we, we find that they're bad at communication, but if you dig properly, they're, they're very happy to divulge information. So we feel like we get a very clear picture, both from the companies themselves as well as regulators, and we've been able to navigate that effectively. But as you said, it has to be done from the ground here in Beijing. Ben, always appreciate it. Thank you. Back here at home, New York and California are considering wealth taxes as revenues dry up in those states. Robert Frank is back with us here on the floor. What are they discussing? And, and why are revenue tax revenues drying yeah. up? So the markets states? were strong last year. Equity markets were strong. We were talking about that. But, but the IPO market deals, buyouts, private equity, all that stuff just cratered. And so capital gains or income where California and New York derive a lot of their revenue just crashed. And so California is now looking at a budget deficit of $68 billion. That is by far the largest deficit they've ever had. New York looking at $4 billion for this coming fiscal year with the migrant crisis probably adding another $12 billion over the next three years. So the question that they have, which they didn't think they would have so quickly after the pandemic is, 
do we cut spending or do we raise revenue? They've tried to cut spending, but these are both, both progressive states with progressive legislatures. So the legislatures of both states are saying we want to raise taxes on the wealthy. California and New York both starting this time, which is unusual, with wealth taxes. So not taxing income, but taxing, in New York's case, unrealized gains. So that's if you had a stock run up last year, but you didn't sell any stock and you have income of, let's say, more than $450,000, New York wants, will look to maybe tax that. California looking at a billionaire's tax, taxing about 1% or 1.5% of total wealth. Who's looking at this? I mean, is Kathy Hochul looking at this? She seems to be a little more pro-business, the governor of New York, perhaps, than, than others, or is the legislature? I'm just trying to understand how likely this is to actually happen. Not likely. Both governors, Governor Hochul in New York and Governor Newsom in California, have said we can't lose more wealthy taxpayers to Texas and Florida, which we have been doing. And the fact that there is even debate about whether the wealthy are leaving just shows these legislatures are gung-ho on doing this. Now, remember, Andrew Cuomo said we will never tax the wealthy. The legislature kept pushing. And finally, he conceded in 2021 to raise that top rate in New York State to 10.9 percent, which means the combined for New York City is over 14 percent. So, Again, the governors can push back, but they may be in a position, again, with deficits that large to eventually cave on some kind of tax increase. Yeah, the unrealized gains, that seems like a slippery slope in terms of getting pushed back. And Absolutely. I mean, it almost seems illegal, right? Wasn't there potential well, court challenges? Well, there is that? a Supreme Court case, uh, Moore versus the United States, which will determine in some respects whether the 16th Amendment allows for a wealth tax. If the Supreme Court shuts that down, it will be harder, not impossible for the states to do it. The bigger issue for the states is, you know, if you have a wealth tax in one state, it's very easy to move to another state. If you're going to do a wealth tax, it has to be federal. And so it's going to be hard if the, when that Supreme Court ruling comes this year. That's going to be the most important tax case in a century when we get that ruling. And Elizabeth Warren and all the tax wealth people will be watching that closely. All right, I'm going to watch it closely. Yeah, me too. <laughs> $100 billion New York City budget, over $200 billion for New York State. Just New York City's bigger than Florida or yeah. around the same size of the yeah. budget. Robert, thank you. Thank you, guys. That's it for us right here on Money Movers. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.